Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium, the new podcast from Science in Sport. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor James Morton. In each episode, James and I will pick a topic within sports and nutrition with an athlete and a sports scientist to get to know the tips and tricks that get our favourite athletes to a podium finish. Science in Sport, the world's leading endurance nutrition brand, is fueled by science and trusted by elites. And so this podcast has been created by them to help you smash your goals by using the insights and knowledge shared firsthand by leading athletes and experts. In this episode, we're going to focus on females in sport. It's a huge topic, but we're primarily focusing on the disparities that female athletes face, as well as a subject that in the past has been taboo and really mustn't be anymore, and that's menstrual cycles. Every woman has to deal with periods, whether we like it or not, and it's not openly discussed enough. Today, James and I will be speaking to professional footballer Jordan Nobbs and Dr. Kirsty Elliott-Sale, who has done so much research into how the menstrual cycle affects female athletes and performance. James, this is such a fascinating subject, and what got me thinking about it was I was listening to a podcast recently, and it was about Jane Fonda. Bear with me. And... What it made me think was in the 80s, that was the first time that females were seen as a a kind of group that could exercise. It was almost like, oh, well, females don't go to the gym. They don't kind of do professional support sport. And then it also made me think about, you know, when the first woman ran the marathon and it was like objected to. So it's all still so recent in our history. Yeah. You know, I vaguely remember my sisters dancing around the living room to a (laughs) Jane Fonda video. (laughs) So it, I bet you were like, where's she going with Jane Fonda here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think society is changing a lot, Charlie, and especially in the last the last five years, the female athlete has really come to the fore. I think we had two great episodes already where we talked about the balance between fueling and weight management. But of course, we only heard it from the male athlete's perspective. And what we know from the research is that the female athlete probably does find it tougher to fuel correctly. Um, and so I really want to try and unpick that in today's episode. Um, it's very unfortunate that the female athlete has been largely under-researched compared to the male athlete. But thankfully, times are changing, Charlie. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that in the next decade, there will be an explosion of research to try and really provide evidence-based guidelines. But to help us along that way, we need to hear from athletes. We need to hear stories from athletes. And so it's great to have someone like Jordan on today's episode. Yeah, it really is. So let's chat to Jordan first. Jordan Nobbs is a professional footballer and plays for Arsenal and England, and she scored over 65 goals. And with over 100 appearances for the team, she's earned her place in the prestigious Arsenal 100 club. Jordan works heavily within promoting women in football and works as an ambassador of Girls United FA, a not-for-profit charity that works to level the playing field for young females in football and empower women through the game. Thanks so much, Jordan, for joining us. One of the things I wanted to start with was you started at the Sunderland Centre of Excellence when you were about eight years old, but I'm sure you started playing football before then. How much has your knowledge of performance and nutrition changed over the years? It has a lot. I mean, obviously, um, when I was younger, I don't think there was anything that um, we were told to really do or follow. Obviously, I was in the England set quite early on and we would get obviously food given to us, which was obviously great, but there wasn't the the products involved um, like SIS or anything like that. Whereas now, obviously, a lot of clubs have nutritionists. We have a nutritionist at the moment, um, which we're hopefully looking to make even stronger at Arsenal in terms of um, developing us. But yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. And I think we've done a lot of um, 
different things where people have come in to try and help us, whether that was with the national team, um, to look at our intake and outtake and um, how much we run, et cetera, to link that to it. And obviously, I think the more as the years go on and the older you get, you realise how key uh, nutrition is. But I think there's still probably a long way to go within uh, the women's game, especially. How much has changed for you personally? And what's the main thing that you've learned, do you think? To eat more. <laughs> Sometimes it might sound simple, but um, the amount I run and, and take from my body, um, I've definitely had a lot of injuries over the years. And I think now it's, you know, 70% of my focus is more towards nutrition than actually the way I train, which obviously sounds incredible, really, when it can come down to what you eat. When they were looking at um, how much, obviously they were taking down how much food you'd eat, and and then at the end of the camp they were saying, right, Jordan, they were like, wow, you need another like two jack of potatoes, another two jack of potatoes, like look how much I've eaten, and I think it's incredible how much your body can handle in terms of that. So I think that's been one of the main things. But I really enjoy the the nutritional side of it, and I think a lot more women would if they if they uh, learn about it and and have the more more conversations about it. Actually, it's funny you said that because James, we on one of our episodes, we did discuss the problems of underfueling in athletes, and I think it's really problematic in terms of a female athlete. Yeah, I think it's great, Jordan, that you've highlighted that right from the beginning because you're absolutely right. When you look at all of the female studies that have been done over the years, probably the the biggest common denominator is this concept of underfueling. And you've already highlighted that you've learned that you need to eat more straight away. And, and that's great to take away, especially for young female footballers that might be listening to this episode. So that's great. How do you prepare in terms of fueling for a match day then? And, and with Arsenal and with the Lionesses? I'd say with Arsenal, it's mainly um, a smoothie on a morning, but that's something I've picked up over the last few years of trying to, I find it really hard to eat on a morning. So when I put bananas, spinach, um, I sometimes put like a carbohydrate protein in there. It just kind of gives me a quick, easy, like guarantee that I've got something in and then it'll normally be like a bagel or eggs or I can veer with just actually wanting cereal because I just find it easy to stomach. Um, and then depending on what time the game is, I'm a very easy spaghetti bolognese girl. Just to, <laughs> <Are you> <laughs> It takes 20 minutes to cook and I'm getting my pasta in really. And then I'm I'm obviously quite big on now uh, my gels that I have like two or three depending on game day or I nearly have one every training session but that's just from experience over the last few years of easy easy fix uh, things for me I'm kind of a basic person in terms of I just want to get it all in at once and then I think with England we're obviously in a very luxury position where our food is pretty much perfect in terms of even. Um, I always find on England camp, I'm probably fueled a little bit better because of the nature of uh, how easy and accessible it is. Just on that, how does it make you feel when you know that when you haven't fueled properly and how does it affect your performance? I will admit that I went through a phase a few years back where I could easily play a 90 minute game without having breakfast. And obviously that is not the thing to do. But I guess when you get a little bit superstitious and you're just comfortable with that, but now I'm just, I get tired, I get fatigued quickly. Um, my time of the month is definitely one of my major concerns in terms of how tired I get leading up to that. But I can definitely tell when I've not fueled properly and I just feel a bit heavier legged. And um, it was only when I started really eating a lot more that I realised how much that had, I'd been neglecting my body. It's interesting you said about superstition because 
I think a lot of us, it's like, well, if that's what you do, then you better not change it just in case. What if you're sick or what if your stomach can't handle it? So I'm just going to stick at that because that's kind of what I've always done. Um, In terms of time of the month, how much has that been integrated, I suppose, into your training? Um, Because it's something that we've, I mean, me and James have talked about it quite a lot and the lack of research in terms of female, the female body and the female athlete. And whether you feel like, I don't know, whether it's affected you and whether you feel able to talk about it. My um, main eye opener was only uh, two years ago, I ruptured my ACL. And the main thing that came back to me was, uh, were you on your time of the month? And it was my first day into my menstrual cycle. And I'd had a really terrible night's sleep. And um, obviously after that, you kind of open your eyes to, wow, could that have been such a major factor to me having an injury? Obviously there's other other effects on that. But I think that was when um, kind of you start seeing things and you start hearing more things. And there were so many people saying, I've done mine at the same time as you, That that's what happened. And um, England have been huge at the moment, um, especially with Dawn Scott coming in. She's uh, been speaking to a woman called Georgie who's, incredible in terms of uh, talking about the menstrual cycle and saying literally you know if if that's in a good place you will have less injuries and I think that's been the education part that has been on highly on nutrition um, and then we now follow a, a fit our woman app which you put in any symptoms and things like that just so obviously they can regulate and see the changes or are you actually under fuel and etc but I think there's a huge part in the women's game um that needs to be changed and educated in that area because uh I don't think we're still uh in the best place possible to just look at so many different women who have so many different effects from that. James, what is the attitude towards or maybe it's not the attitude or the tradition in terms of research and predominantly being on male bodies because I think it's not just in sport. I remember watching this talk which was all about how um, our science is based on the male body because it's an easier hormone as in you'll get a, a more uh, standard result because it won't differ so much because there isn't as many hormones yeah yeah no you're absolutely right charlie the reality of it is is the female athlete just hasn't been as well researched as the male athlete and so unfortunately a lot of our nutritional advice over the years has kind of been a copy and paste approach and, and thankfully, times are changing. There's a lot more scientific interests. We have a lot more athletes like Jordan coming forward, telling her story. And over the next 10 years, we're going to see a huge explosion of female-specific research that will allow us to really have evidence-based guidelines. And it's great to hear from the athletes' stories. It's great to hear from the scientists' stories. And the two of them working together will give us the best chance of, of really delivering evidence-based guidelines. Jordan, what did they say to you in terms of, because that was when you did your ACL, right? And it was when you missed out on the World Cup, which is obviously a massive, you know, it's not it's not just the injury. It was then the after effect of what that did to you, I presume, mentally as well. Yeah, it was obviously um, in terms of football world, it was one of the hardest times of my life. Um, I think you work so hard to get to the level you want to be and major tournaments are everywhere a top athlete wants to play and I think um when you start thinking of all the what ifs and it could come down to the menstrual cycle or what you could have done better um you know I definitely don't just put full blame on that 100% but mentally um it was a real struggle for me and 
you know, the way the women's game is now, we need all the professional help we can possibly get to to stay at that level and also be on the pitch as much as possible. So whenever I could help in that situation or try and understand my body better, you know, I'm I'm really into t- into learning about that. And I think education's the big point on the women's game, especially. I don't think people know what to eat, know what is best. And I think the more we talk about it and show and prove how how well it works, then, you know, we can only get stronger and better like that and then compete and, and stay fit. Yeah, because I know you've done a call to make sure there is more research um, into the menstrual cycle and into women's bodies as athletes. Um, what helps you? You mentioned about a certain shake um, when you're on your period, but what else helps you? Is there anything that you do that you can share with us that we can learn from? See, I just get really tired. So I guess it's mine's just actually listening to your body. So, you know, actually sitting on the sofa when you can and, and relaxing. But apart from that, I think it's just trying to do, trying to eat as, as best I can. Um, it's really hard because uh, you have a lot of cravings and you just try, try and avoid them. There's some great points there that Jordan made. And actually, it reminds me of a study that we've just finished in, in Liverpool, John Moores, with some of my colleagues, um, Lloyd Parker, Graham Close, and indeed Kirsty Seal that we'll hear from in the next guest. But we surveyed a group of WSL players looking at their symptoms over the menstrual cycle. And as Jordan's just said, obviously, we found that the biggest symptom that um, these players experienced during their period, if you like, was was cramps, um, sore backs, tiredness, feeling lethargic, a loss of appetite. Um, and so sometimes it, some of the problems could be as simple as just not eating enough and just, just not, you're losing the appetite, so you're not eating enough. And then, of course, if you come back to fueling and you're not eating enough carbohydrate, perhaps you have a really hard training block over your, your period, a hard two or three days. That could be disastrous for performance, could be disastrous for injury risk, and it could be something as simple as just missing one or two meals per day. It's interesting because, you know, Jordan, you said that's one of the things that, you know, you were probably underfueling for what you were expecting out of your body. What what helped you the most in coming back from that injury? I guess it's the support and the belief just to, you know, if you want to get back on the pitch, you have to do everything possible, whether that's eating the right things, having a protein shake every single day um, during my recovery. Obviously, you have to stay mentally strong because uh, especially with the ACL, it's it can go from one extreme, like you feel like you're not going to be able to walk again to then someone trying to bend your knee and you literally, it just won't bend, you know, like it feels like torture when they're doing it. Um, So I guess it was just me believing that I wanted to get back on the pitch as much as possible. But I think it's important that the people around you are supporting you in every area and um, providing you with the best information and you taking that on board. Uh, But it's obviously tough for any athlete to, to go through injury. But I think the main things was just trying to fuel as much as possible, if, if not even more. But I think it's obviously then carrying that over to when you're fit. I think when you're injured, you probably concentrate a bit more on your protein and, and a bit more on the the little things. And then as soon as you're back fit again, those things can slightly ease out if you don't stay on top of it. Um, so I think that's just something to, it's like you need a checklist to be like, Jordan, don't forget this because it works. You know, there's definitely days where you're allowed to have the bad days I think sometimes I would go into training and I'm a bit of a a crier uh, more than an angry person and sometimes I would just be a bit upset in the gym and I'd just say especially because it was a long injury I'd just be like I just need to go home today and I think even though that looks like probably a a setback it's 
it it was the best thing for me rather than struggling through that day and going in the next day and struggling again. It was just a, I need a one minute break. Let me regroup and come back to that. I think there's so much strength in that, don't you think? Oh, massively. I mean, it's great for Jordan to share her story there. I should say, unfortunately, I've also worked with some male players that have had ACL injuries. And I remember at the time I asked Steve Peters, Charlie, that we had on episode one, um, for some advice on how to work with those types of athletes. And and Steve's advice right up front was actually to try and get the athlete to accept that they've become injured and then to realise, well, I can't do the things that I used to do before and just accept it. Once you've accepted it, then you can start building the plan forward. And then it was very much about give yourself new goals and, and work towards those new goals because the chimp likes to have new goals. And if you're focusing on the things that you can't do rather than the things that you can do, um, it's pretty much not conducive to a good mindset and dealing with that injury. But thankfully, you came out the other side, Jordan, and you're probably feeling a lot stronger for it. Yeah, no, you you just have to take the good and the bad. I think uh, you'd be ridiculous in a, a world we play in to think that you might not get an injury. Um, obviously, you don't want that one, but I'd find it very rare that you don't get injured in football. And it's just how you uh, come out of that and survive and <laughs> just get back on board as soon as possible. Yeah, I think that acceptance and the expectation you put on yourself is really key. James, just what, when we were talking about female athletes, how much can people like yourself change things to support female athletes and make sure that there is that conversation? Yeah, there was a paper published just last year, actually, And the title of the paper was pretty much what do male coaches want to know about the menstrual cycle when working with female athletes? And it was all of the usual stuff. Um, How do you feel during it? Does your training intensity suffer? Um, What can we do to support you? And I think a lot of males, and I don't want to generalize because I know there's a lot of expert male coaches out there who do have these conversations regularly. But in my experiences, I would say that we don't do it enough. Um, So I'd love to ask Jordan some advice on how we can approach these conversations, perhaps a bit more sensitive and and really support the athletes through this this journey. I think now that it does seem like there's proven uh, difficulties within that, it does need to be spoken about. Um, I don't know how much I'd want my manager just coming up to me and talking about about it with me or how that would work. Are you on your period? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think the more that we can have, whether it was a team meeting and a professional came in to speak about it, show examples of things of of the good and the bad, I think that would be crucial to support and top athletes. I think if if you want to be better, then you will take that advice on board and you'll want to learn from it and you'll want to improve. But I think until we speak about it or know about it, we we don't then talk talk about it. But I think that we did this thing in England and it was uh, last year. Um, and it was obviously on fuel and it was more around fueling, but I think I was what, 27 when we did that. And you think of how much I've missed out on in that whole, you know, in my whole career. And then um, obviously that comes in and then you start improving things. But I think the quicker we can educate at younger level and the more they are encouraged to talk about it and know about the things that they can have that will help, then people can only get stronger and, um, support themselves and their bodies and I think it's also about mindset as well I think when you feel better your mind feels in a better place you you don't feel as tired and um you know it's a crucial part to the game if you get injured how psychologically you can be hurt by that it's it's a bit it plays a big role in the women's game especially 
it's interesting that you said you know it was only when you were 27 what was that last year yeah yeah that that was something that was implemented in it's just so slow still I suppose isn't it is it something you now talk about and you said oh you know you don't know whether you'd want your coach coming up to you and you do have a male coach at the moment um at Arsenal so how do you kind of have that relationship in terms of how you are feeling we definitely have a good relationship but I just don't know how much their education as well would be then to dipping into training or taking away a bit of training I think that has to come as a collective as a whole club whether it's through the physio to the SNCs to to everyone but I guess this is a hard part from me because I wouldn't like to be pulled out of training all the time because that was happening I think it's how do we support it to a certain level but um still allow the player to be on the pitch or you know you don't want it to become so far that it starts tipping and and you're not actually playing or or training so I guess it's just one of them of I personally think nutrition is one of the main things with that um like James said but I think that's still something that conversations still need to happen um I think with Arsenal England they've they've took massive steps in in looking into that but how much more can we really detail uh, the women's body? Yeah, no, I think Jordan makes some great points there, Charlie, because we talk a lot about education and that we need to educate players coming through the system, especially at a young age. But we also need to really educate the coaches and the managers so that those conversations do become normalised. And, and maybe in years to come, a future Jordan Nobbs isn't that concerned about speaking to the manager because it is just part and parcel. It becomes like putting on your heart rate monitor to go out for training. And everyone in the backroom staff is all aligned on your individual scenario. I think on the training side that Jordan mentioned, it's absolutely, we, we don't want managers and coaches pulling players from training. That's the last thing that needs to happen to move this area forward. It's supporting the player in training. And whether that's maybe a reduction in training intensity, maybe it's slightly changing the training focus of those two or three days. Maybe it's more tactical types of training as opposed to more physical types of training. But the more that everyone's aware of the issues and the more that we talk, the better it will be for everyone, I think. In terms of general exercise, though, James, you know, should you change your training load when you're on your period, though? Because... Well, for, for me, and I think it's important to point out we're all individuals and different symptoms, you know. I might have different symptoms to say you, Jordan. But for me, actually, like, training helps. Yeah, it, it's so individualised, Charlie, and, and there's no way that we can have a one-size-fits-all approach because, as you just said, some people prefer to train. Some people might prefer to reduce their training intensity. But you try telling a highly trained athlete like Jordan or an Olympic athlete, right, you're not training for two or three days it's just not going to work is it Jordan it's just not going to work at all I think that's why nutrition can be so key because that could probably help either or symptom in terms of both of you could have that same nutrition or if not one could have more or or less and still maybe hopefully come out with the same outcome obviously I don't I don't know the answers um but if that's a an opportunity to try in that area then it's a positive should you eat more then well, there is, there is some evidence in the follicular phase of your menstrual cycle, which is kind of like five, six, seven days in, that perhaps you might reduce the amount of glycogen that you store. Now, of course, glycogen is the main fuel for high-intensity exercise. But that evidence is, is quite limited, Charlie, because for one paper showing you one thing, you can find another paper showing you the opposite. 
And so I would always come back to those individualization of the strategies and making sure that you're fueled well during your period, because there is a tendency perhaps, and we've heard from Jordan already, to maybe under fuel during your period. And that could lead to increased risk of poor performance and worse still, even injury. It's funny you say that one paper contradicts that paper and it's just like frustrating because then how do you actually know what's the right thing to do for you? Is that because there needs to be more research? Absolutely. There needs to be more research. I think we'll hear from Kirsty in in the second interview that we'll do is the, the quality of the research over the years hasn't been good enough, Charlie. It just hasn't been good enough. That's the reality. And and we need people like Jordan to come forward to raise awareness. I mean, five years ago, and I'll be completely honest, guys, five years ago, I wasn't probably wasn't interested in, in pursuing research in the female athlete. But now because Why? Of, because it just didn't enter my head, Charlie. It just I wasn't aware of all of these issues until people like Jordan came forward and shared their story. And then I was looking at myself in the mirror going I'm not really doing good enough here, am I, as a sport nutritionist? I need to do something about it. And so the the simple sharing of stories has changed my attitude. Working with people who are much smarter than me has changed my attitude. And now I'm ready to try and help this whole area move forward. What's that make you think, Jordan, when you hear that from James? And thanks for being honest, James. Unfortunately, it's just kind of, it's a bit like when I started playing football, it wasn't on the telly. I didn't, couldn't really watch it. I guess it's like that in a lot of areas, especially, obviously I can only talk on behalf of the women's game. Um, so I guess in, in all areas we're wanting it to improve, but it doesn't surprise me, I guess, uh, too much that that was the case because I think there was other areas we were fighting, whereas I think the game's got that strong now that we're now going into the more detailed areas to fight for, for every single area. Um, which is obviously a good thing, you know. We're not we're not fighting for our games to be on TV anymore. We're fighting for how do we keep the best players on the pitch, etc. But hopefully, we can just um, you know, it, it's not going to drastically suddenly change overnight. It's going to be a, a process. But hopefully, we can just give the next generation of girls, including obviously ourselves now, to just be the best a- a- athletes they can and just provide them with um, whatever possible, really. You're doing quite a lot of work around that and around breaking down those barriers of girls getting into sport and into exercise. Have you got any advice for for females, not not just young girls, but females that are wanting to get more into exercise at any age, really? I just think it's not being scared to try something. I think um, it's like anything at first, it's a bit daunting, but I think as soon as you step your foot in the door, you think, wow, I wish I'd done that earlier. So I think it's just encouraging you to grab a mate and go for a run in the park or um, join a local side and just I think you'll feel a lot better for it. It's just uh, I think the more normal it can look and the more people we see jogging around the streets, uh, the more you're encouraged to do that. But I think it's just media, everything, just having that platform and them opportunities to allow, whether it's women just going for a walk in the park or someone wants to become one of the best players in the world, they have that opportunity and you know, I think especially when we talk in the women's game, it's is there a, somewhere local for a girl to go play football? You know, no. If there's not, how do we how do we help that child? Yeah, is body image something that also was that ever ever a barrier for you? Is it something that you've heard about? Because I think in conversations around this, it's something that comes up a lot. I've never known it personally with me or another athlete, but I think whenever I have been asked this before and I I think about it I'm like 
it's funny how many comments the girls will make about their bodies, but they're not meaning it in a really bad way, but it does get brought up a lot. So maybe self-consciously people are thinking about it a little bit. Um, I'd say the, the only thing that the only time I've ever thought about this, and maybe it's a very silly example, but when I go on holiday, I'm very easily noticed as an athlete because I'm quite muscly, um, et cetera. And obviously it doesn't make me laugh because I'm comf- I'm very comfortable, but maybe uh, that could affect someone else or, or make them feel differently. But I know that as soon as I go on holiday, people are like, what sport do you play? You know, because of the way I look. Yeah, I think there's a big unconscious bias, Charlie, towards body composition that people don't realise. Um, just last week, actually, I was working with a group of, of master sport nutrition students who were going into um, a women's football team to give a presentation on nutrition. And we were talking about how can you open to get a nice hook and convince the players that this is important. Now, their first reaction was to talk about body composition. And a lot of people, when they talk about nutrition, they associate it with body composition. And I was trying to say to the girls, actually, that might not be the best route in because it's about fueling for performance. It's about reducing injury risk. Don't associate nutrition with being fat or being skinny. Associate it with performance. And the more that we can change conversations around food as fuel and food will make you go faster, as opposed to food can make you overweight or underweight, I think the more healthier relationships we're going to have move, moving forward. How much more do we need to we need to learn, James, then? Well, I think you never stop learning, Charlie. Um, of course, that's one of the most important things in life is to keep learning. But for the female athlete in particular, there is so much that we've copied and pasted from the male athlete. Even as simple as, as what's, what's the maximal rate of carbohydrates that females can use during exercise? We don't really know yet. We're basing that on research from male athletes. So there's so much fundamental stuff that we still have to, to learn. And for sure, the next 10 years, we'll see an explosion in research in these areas. What would you like to see Jordan change the most? And is this something that you really look on in a wider perspective as well? Or, or is it very much focused on your performance day in, day out? Mine obviously sounds really basic, but it's probably because it's not there yet. But mine would just be educating. It would be educating as much as possible what the good and the bad is of of nutrition, of when your time of the month is coming, how do we look after yourself? Um, but I think that's the experts like James coming in, speaking to us and and giving us the the knowledge that we need to become better athletes. I guess that's it sounds very simple, but I think we've still not probably really kicked into that area enough. James, you were asking Jordan some advice. So I kind of want to finish. Is there anything that you could then impart? You said about match day minus one. And is that something you do, Jordan? Yeah, I think that's something that um, we've been told uh, over the last few years that it's crucial to eat um, a lot more. Uh, Sometimes at England camp, we're allowed a little treat on actually the day before to just get as much carbs in as possible. Oh, what, what would that look like? <laughs> oh, it'd still be not too bad, a bit, some custard or apple oh, crumble. Oh, yes, custard. <laughs> and so if you look at that as a wider context, match day minus one would be, so it's the day before any competition or event or race or anything. It could be a 10K marathon, 5K football yes. match, World yeah. Cup. <laughs> no, yeah, it could be anything. So is that a good thing to look at the minus one? 
oh, when of it com- anything. When it comes to fueling, Charlie, that's one of the most important days of the week because if you if you go into a competition underfueled, it's and the, look, we teach young children this is it's like putting petrol in the car. Without the petrol, the car won't go very far. It's exactly the same with the human body. If you don't fuel up correctly the day before exercise, then it's very likely that you won't perform to your best the next day. Even if you have had a nice pre-match meal or a pre-race meal, the day before is probably more important. So, yeah. So, Jordan, you asked Jordan about advice and how, you know, males can do things better in this area. So, have you got anything that you would advise Jordan on, given that we've really focused on that underfueling? And Jordan, have you got anything that you would advise our listeners that's helped you in terms of underfueling? I think what I would say to Jordan is is continue to do what you're doing and, and speaking out and raising awareness. Um, but then when it comes to working with your sport nutritionist actually in your team is, is really having that trusting relationship where you can talk openly. And, and sometimes I see in my experience, maybe some athletes are frightened of carbohydrate. They don't want to consume carbohydrate. And, and so then talking about their beliefs behind that. Why is that? How can we support that? So the more open the conversations that the nutritionist, the sports science team have with the player, it's going to be better for everyone. Jordan, any advice in terms of underfueling? And actually, actually, I should I should ask you as well for people on their menstrual cycle. I know we've said every individual's different, but anything that you've learned that could help? I think communicating about everything first, trying to educate yourself as much as possible, but I think not being worried to... Um, think there's going to be side effects or, or bad things about actually um eating more you know my body has changed absolutely not at all considering I'm now trying to feel more so I think it's just communicating as best as you can to find out the right thing that that helps you and I think um it'll definitely make you feel better and I think when it comes to the menstrual cycle it's just about not being scared to speak up and talk about it and say how you feel you know your, your good days your bad days and and learn from trying things really um but i think the more people like james that can get involved it's going to be um helpful to to anyone i'm really glad james that jordan really she highlighted a lot and had so much honesty in terms of talking about underfueling and i think that it's very common with females and i actually when i asked jordan that question i wondered if it was some a little bit psychological as well because i think that it's common because I don't know, you don't want to put on weight or there's that psychological aspect. And you know, Jordan mentioned about education. For me, I kind of look back and it wasn't really education because I trained as a teenager and I actually went on a sports nutrition course qualification, actually. It was a diploma, so it was a high level. So I had the knowledge, but I still, a lot of the time, one of my main problems was under fueling, especially when I did like marathons or Ironman and it wasn't of lack of knowledge it was actually my my mental health really and how I felt about body image and also whether eating this or eating that would affect me in that way and I don't know is that something James that's that's you've come across yeah I have Charlie if I'm being honest I mean I obviously haven't worked as closely with female athletes compared to males but the females that I have spoken to in the past I think at times there has been this relationship where they've almost been frightened of food and they haven't seen seen it as a as a performance enhancing substance if you like because of course that is what food can do 
I must say the guys at the FA, good friends of mine, James Moorhead, Chris Rosamus and, and Don Scott that Jordan actually mentioned herself, they're doing some fantastic stuff on the education side and I think they're really honing in on that fueling element. And I, I was really glad that Jordan brought that to the fore and I hope that our listeners listening to this episode, especially any young female footballers that might be listening to this episode, can really take away that message that, that fuel fuel is your friend and fuel makes you go fast and fuel helps you perform. How important is it that we look at the female body of an athlete differently to men? Because we're having the conversation at the moment about quality, which is 100% right, but also... I feel it's very important that we also look at our individualisms as a male and a female. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a tricky balance, Charlie, because what I don't think we should we should try and encourage is that you're a male and you're a female, so we treat you differently. I think what we should be trying to say is we're athletes and as an athlete then we might have some individual requirements. And of course if you're a male or a female, you might have some different requirements. So rather than going into the conversation of male versus female, go into the conversation of athlete first and then treat the athlete as a person. And then the male and the female stuff can come out eventually, but not lead with that male and female, because sometimes we might create a stigma around it, which could make the whole thing even worse. Mm. But I suppose my point was that we have to be studying the female body because it is different. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as I mentioned at the very beginning of, of the episode, we, we don't know as much about the female athlete as what we do with the male athlete. That's why we've got great guests like Kirsty Elliott Seal coming on to, to teach us about female physiology. And what I can say is that I've learned more about female physiology off Kirsty in the last six to 12 months than what I did in the previous 10 years of my career. So thankfully, we are, we have got these these real experts around and we just need to share their stories as well as the athletes' stories. Let's chat to Kirsty. I'm really intrigued what she's going to say. Kirsty is an Associate Professor of Female Physiology and is the Head of Musculoskeletal Physiology Research Group at Nottingham Trent University, where she studies female athletes and performance, which also includes research into the menstrual cycle, hormonal contraceptives, and a topic we discussed in episode one, relative energy deficiency in sport, which we refer to as REDS. Kirsty's research within these areas really puts her on the map as the perfect person to speak about periods and the female body in regards to sport. Kirsty, I find this area um, that you spent a long time working in really fascinating. Does it make things much more complicated? Because I've done some stuff in terms of like also science and health and disease. And a lot of the time it's looked at the male body because there's more consistency in hormones and obviously they don't have the menstrual cycle. So I thought it might be quite helpful if you could actually start off by describing the cycle and the changes of hormones, because I think sometimes we all just go, oh, well, we're, we're on our period and we don't really make any changes and we just try and kind of suck it up. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I can I can see the the difficulty for researchers in trying to sort of standardize a, a female population in a study is, is really difficult. So, yeah, so one of the hormone profiles that a female athlete might experience is, is the menstrual cycle, as you say. And really, I guess it's a, 
a repeating pattern. Um, so, you know, predictable pattern of um, ovarian hormone concentrations, which occurs usually around about a month. So actually, um, it's it's what, you know, the menstrual cycle, um, mensal is actually a Latin word meaning around a month. So, so that's why we typically think of it as being around a 28 day cycle. And these ovarian hormones, um, estrogen and progesterone, they change during the menstrual cycle in a, in a predictable way. But at the same time, these changes in hormones, they can also have sort of, you know, symptoms and side effects um, and also could affect potentially things like performance or, or nutritional uh, practices and things like that. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. How does that translate to then how you feel? And because if I'm on my period and I go training, I tend to feel a, a lot more lacking in energy, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make is is how you feel can be different, I think, than sort of some of what the research focuses on. So the research tends to focus on if you have a particular concentration of estrogen, how is your muscle strength? So, you know, there's that sort of very biological pathway. But at the same time, you almost can't sort of separate the two. It's how does estrogen make you feel? And if you feel tired or, you know, lethargic or you're not you're not motivated to train, then that can have, you know, a really big impact away from that sort of biological pathway that we tend to look at in research um, so yeah actually you know in terms of sort of symptoms and experiences um, you know some women have no symptoms whatsoever so they don't even know when, when they're on their period it makes no difference to them whereas other women are highly affected and, and particularly that sort of time that sort of three or four days before you get your period that's often when the symptoms are, are at their greatest um, so you know this has been described as PMS, PMT so premenstrual tension or premenstrual syndrome and we see a lot of symptoms occurring there and then of course during the actual bleed you know that's a that's an experience in itself uh, and so you know that can be quite off-putting to athletes as well in terms of you know how they train and, and how they feel so yeah I think you know one of the biggest things we need to do really sort of quickly is determine which of our athletes are symptomatic and and which don't have any symptoms at all because we mustn't try and sort of fit in any guidelines to people who who don't have any changes at all so I think that's really important to sort of track those symptoms symptoms and how they affect us because you know when faced with a group of sports women it's not just sort of differences in the experiences of the menstrual cycle but some of them don't even have a menstrual cycle so we have you know female athletes with menstrual irregularities we have some that are hormonal contraceptive users we have some who are pregnant or who have just been pregnant and so if you really look at you know women as a group you know reproductive hormones estrogen and progesterone change right across the the, the, the lifespan so you know you have puberty menstrual cycles oral contraceptive use pregnancy the menopause, you know, if you're looking at slightly older athletes. So I think it's really super important, you know, that with sports women, you know, more than any other group, we take a very individualized approach. I'll come back to one of the comments that you made there about one rule for all and one size fits all. Um, and, and I'm as guilty as anyone in this regard. I, I was talking to Kirsty yesterday, actually. I published my first research paper in 2005. 16 years later, only 6% of the studies that I've been involved with have involved females. I'm almost embarrassed to say that statistic. But what I would say is on the same side of things, Kirsty has spent most of her career studying females as opposed to males. Now, what this means for the practical application, if you take my scenario when I work with athletes, in the past, it was kind of a copy and paste approach, is that what you've done for the male athlete, you just copy and paste that across to the female athlete. And now, of course, we're realizing that that is just a ludicrous way to practice sport nutrition. But of course, now the whole um, the whole taboo around this area is completely changing. And thankfully, this is such a hot topic at the minute. And there's so much interest from researchers, from athletes themselves, 
everyone's talking about it. But what we need to do now is really improve the quality of the research so that we can then make these recommendations really not a one-size-fits-all. And that's the biggest challenge, I think, from my perspective. It's funny that you, you used two words that you said taboo. So is it still a taboo? And then I think it's interesting how you say it's a hot topic. And for me, it's like, well, women have always had periods and <laughs> we're always going <laughs> to. And shouldn't it just be normalized rather than a hot topic? Or is it a hot topic because things are changing? No, I, I think it's it absolutely should be normalized. But in the past, no one talked about it. And now we are talking about it. And because of we're talking about it, it's bringing it to the forefront of people's minds like myself. From a science perspective, when we're doing research and we're designing our studies, again, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, we often go, it's too hard to study the female athlete, so let's concentrate on males. And I think a large part of male researchers are guilty of that. And I'll openly admit that I've had those thoughts in the past. So, Kirsty, maybe let's go back to young athletes. Um, you did mention that briefly. I was a young athlete and I did have a male coach. I've always had male coaches. And it was never discussed, but I know that was quite a long time ago now. How important is it that we kind of address it in young athletes? Because to me, it could be the one thing that is whether you reach your potential or whether you just actually never do sport or you know, leave the sport that you love or that you're amazing at, because it can be really intimidating, especially, I mean, I was a track athlete. So, you know, on a night, on a cold evening, I just kind of like run to the toilet and try and figure out what to do and then get back to training and it was never really discussed yeah I mean I, I think it's super important that we that we normalize as, as James says the conversation in in sort of every aspect of, of sport but particularly I think in in sort of younger athletes because if we can change the culture there and make it you know really honest really transparent and you know sort of again without consequence because what we don't want to do is have you know young sports women you know say oh you know I've got my period and I'm not feeling great and and you know maybe ask for a slightly you know lighter training session and then for that to be used against them and you know or they're benched or they're not chosen or, or whatever so you know we need to have these conversations in a very safe way as well and I think you know we, we know that younger athletes you know drop out of sport you know in that sort of teenage years so I think if we can change that you know if, if girls are reluctant to do sport or they're reluctant into you know to talk about this this could be you know yet another reason why they're dropping out so yeah if we can if we can get the younger sort of you know athletes on side and and you know we can get coaches on side and, and I would say I feel a little bit bad for James because you know oh, he, he said you know he said six percent of his papers or, or something were in 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 females you know only two percent of mine are in males so you know it works it works both ways um, but I think you know that the fact is that up until recently you know a, a big change in point for me has been I think this last Olympic cycle um, you know, and this is if this is the well, the, when they happen, if and when they happen, these next Olympics will be the first one where there's pretty much parity in the number of you know male and female sort of athletes um, at the games, and and because of that, it'll be the first games you know where there are as many medals available for for sports women as sports men. And I think that's been a real turning point, you know, particularly at a, at a national level, you know, the sort of bigger national level is that, you know, sort of looking then and saying, OK, well, who are we taking to the Olympics? OK, what proportion are females? How do we maximise the medal potential? And I think this has really sort of sparked off a, a lot of the recent interest. So as you say, this sort of hot topic. So I think, you know, it's taken this, you know, rise in sort of participation at the elite, you know, at the most elite level to really then trickle down. And I think, you know, 
that sounds like a, a top-down approach, but we can certainly, as you say, Charlie, bring it from the bottom up and change the culture at grassroots for the younger athletes, keep them in it, keep them talking about it, you know, get their coaches, male coaches and female coaches inside. I mean, again, I'll, I'll just for the sake of being fair what I would say in my experience in the last five years I I give a lot of sort of you know educational talks or raising awareness talks you know to practitioners and actually the male practitioners are often the keenest you know to hear these talks they have the most questions and one big thing I will say is you know we should never assume that female researchers or female practitioners are better placed than than the guys because you know often their knowledge is is really limited and or you know they tend to be biased upon their own experience so if you know they had bad experiences with periods that's what they sort of you know emulate their athletes or you know if they're anti-hormonal contraceptives they push that too so I think you know for me I I would take pretty much a clean slate now and I would say you know let's just all get on board you know educate ourselves raise awareness and as you say you know particularly target those younger athletes. On the contraceptive pill how can that be used because I know that former badminton world champion the amazing Gail Ems and Paula Radcliffe also incredible they used to use the contraceptive pill as a way to not for contraception well maybe they did but actually to limit to stop their period so they didn't have a period in competition yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I, I often think about, you know, you know, if you watch Wimbledon, you know, you've got these girls out in white, you know, outfits. It must be, you know, terrifying. Or if you've got rowers who are, you know, out on the water for 10 hours straight, how do they deal with their periods in, in those sort of circumstances? So it makes sense to me, you know, that, you know, sportswomen, you know, female exercisers would want to, you know, get rid of something that is, you know, let's face it, it's really inconvenient, you know, and often quite unpleasant if you have, you know, a lot of sort of symptoms associated with it so it makes sense to me you know a lot of the data that we've seen that you know oral contraceptives or just hormonal contraceptives in general are you know quite often used by sportswomen not for contraception as you said but to sort of manipulate their cycle and you know that's got pros and cons certainly if you're somebody who suffers from a lot of symptoms or you're in a sport which just doesn't lend itself to you know as you said Charlie popping off to the loo you know middle of the Olympics excuse me <laughs> off I go you know if, if that's you know if, if you're suffering or if your sport doesn't lend itself to that that makes sense and, and you know clearly that would be you know something that, that would really you know help them stay in the sport and, and help them to compete to a, a high level so again just thinking I guess more theoretically here if you know we have an athlete on a, an oral contraceptive for 20 years with really low estrogen for 20 years you know will that have a negative impact on something like bone health I what I could say Charlie this is, um, and this might seem quite naive but one of the biggest things that I've learned since working with Kirsty is that the perfect 28 day menstrual cycle doesn't exist and we see lots of variability when we survey athletes and they track their periods and they track their menstrual cycle length in fact we've just done a study that was led by dr carl evans as part of the science and sport performance solutions team carl's also a postdoctoral researcher at liverpool john moore's but we surveyed over 600 athletes um, and they reported their menstrual cycle length and it was variability as as, as much as 10 days per month um, so then when you try and think, right, I'll I'll change my nutrition or my training according to my menstrual cycle, well, you can't really do it because it's so variable. And then, of course, half of your population might actually be on contraceptives anyway, so they don't have a classic menstrual cycle. So this concept of a one-size-fits-all approach that you mentioned before, if there's any aspect of sports science where you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach, it's, it's definitely this one. I feel like I should... Um... 
I'm just thinking in my head whether I should tell this story, but I'm going to. Um, because to show how irregular it is, um, I'm someone that's always had quite regular periods, to be fair, and I'm currently not on the contraceptive bill, but there's a bit of an ongoing joke with me and my mates because I've done three Ironman competitions. You know what's coming um, so far. And on every single Ironman, no matter where it falls, halfway through the Ironman, I've started my period. The first full Ironman I did, I basically came off the bike, put my bike in, got my running stuff on, and then came out to start the running course, you know, obviously the third part of an Ironman triathlon. And I was like, oh no. And then I ran back in the tent because you have the tent um, to, you know, get changed in once you've racked your bike. And then all my friends were like, oh my God, what's she doing? What's she doing? And then I ran out and my friend, and I just went, oh my god I've just come on and my friends some of my friends were guys like oh my god and they literally she's just shouted it to everyone and we were also I was also being filmed for this one as well um and everybody heard and it was I was just like oh my gosh that was the first one then the second one I did the exact same thing happened the one I've just done recently about 18 months just before COVID started exactly the same thing happened what is that about I feel like it's kind of like playing a trick on me um that it always I always come on on the actual day and I do wonder if that's you know you mentioned irregularities Kirsty is is that like because of the amount of training because I also know that when you're younger um I you know I do know somebody from my training group when I was a teenage athlete who her periods completely stopped because she was training so much yeah, no, the, there are a lot of menstrual irregularities which are directly linked to sort of training volume and, you know, all, all that sort of thing. So you're right. There's, I guess, two ends of the spectrum where, where one sort of, you know, you get complete loss of, of a menstrual cycle. So so those changes in estrogen and progesterone that I described, they become completely blunted. So almost then think of this sort of flat line. And, um, you know, so so amenorrhea is is that sort of scientific term for, for when you lose your periods. And, and that's something that we, we see in elite sport. But, you know, there are other ones that are, are more sort of subtle than that so of course if you're somebody who's used to getting a period you know every month or so give or take if you lose your period okay that's quite an, an obvious obvious change but some of the other sort of irregularities that we see in elite sport or really even in just an exercising population are things like um, anovulation so that means that you don't ovulate in the middle of, of your cycle and again you have these sort of I guess a different profile with with estrogen it, it doesn't peak in the same way so you can have these type of anovulatory cycles and that's not that obvious so you'd have to do a little bit of investigation to see you know so so something other than I've just lost my period so you could have your period but not ovulate you can have longer cycles so oligomenorrhea so that's when your cycles go beyond sort of you know 31 32 days so if you have sort of longer ones and and that if you think about that picture that I keep sort of describing to you just think of everything sort of moves a little bit to the to the right and then we can have shorter sort of you know called um, polymenorrhea where your, your cycles are shorter than 21 days which sounds horrendous right imagine having your period every two sort of weeks instead of every sort of four weeks and so you know that moves everything you know to, to the left and you know you get all these different conditions you know all these different hormonal profiles so it really goes back to as James said you know if you're faced with a group of, of sports women to work with and, and you're you know trying for I don't know why you try and do this but you're trying to pick up nutritional guidelines and, and shove them you know en masse to a group of female athletes 
you know, you've got your hormonal contraceptive users, of which the oral contraceptive pill is just one type. You've got those with the cycle and the cycle is changing, you know, on a day by day basis. It's changing in length from month to month. And then you have another group, a third group of those with menstrual irregularities, you know, who have no periods or they're not ovulating or their profile has moved to the right or to the left and they're longer and they're shorter. And so we just really keep coming back to this sense of, you know, I just don't know how it's possible to try and take, you know, this this one size fits all to sports women and say, here are your nutritional guidelines or here are your training guidelines, because the differences between us are, you know, immense. <laughs> I don't even have a big enough word for it. <laughs> I think I've just accepted that every time I do a competition, I'm just going to come on my period. Um, oh, on that yes. note, I, I kind of want to ask what you just said. Is there anything, any advice that either of you can give in a nutritional way? Like, you know, you just said, well, we can't do that one size fits all. But is there any bits that we could take for the general population? Um, you know, if it's a heavier period, should you increase calorie consumption? Um, you know, what about iron, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I mean, that paints a very negative picture. But, you know, I think James and I are particularly talking about research evidence. But of course, there, you know, there's other ways to to inform your practice. So I would say, I guess, two two things. The first is, you know, tracking your menstrual status. And I'm going to call that menstrual status rather than menstrual cycle. So tracking your menstrual status means, you know, you know what profile you are and that you discuss that with your coach. So, you know, all that support team, whether it's a nutritionist, S&C coach, whoever, everybody knows, you know, what type of sportswoman you are. So whether you're menstrual cycle, hormonal contraceptive user or menstrual irregularity. So, so knowing your menstrual status is super important. Then I think you need to, so if you are, for example, if you have a menstrual cycle and, you know, you have periods and things like that, I think you need to, to track your cycle. So again, you get a sense of, you know, how predictable is it? So how how much does your cycle vary by, by month to month? And then, you know, start to, to, to generate your own data. So, so basically, you know, try and recall, you know, using a diary, whatever you want, pen and paper. I'm, I'm old fashioned. I'm a dinosaur. So, you know, write down on this day of my menstrual cycle, this is how I feel and this is how it impacted my performance. And suddenly you're generating your own data set, you know, alongside your team. You know, as I say, again, it really the more transparent and the more honest and more open the environment is, if you're doing this alongside your support team, then you're generating this data that you can all use. So I think that that for me would be the approach that I would take working in practice, generate your own data and use that to inform your own practice. Yeah, I think Kirsty makes a lot of good points there on tracking the cycle. And one of the things that surprised me most actually was that I kind of assumed that females did this anyway. <laughs> but then as I started working with females, especially at the elite level, I quickly understood that actually females don't really understand the menstrual cycle the way that I assumed that they did. Now, if the female athletes themselves didn't understand it, how on earth do you expect the coach and the performance staff to understand the cycle? So tracking it for me is is rule number one, start tracking it. And it doesn't have to be all sophisticated Blood and urine kits, pen and paper can work just as any as a start. On the nutritional side, I would always return to some of the basics, Charlie. And, and we picked up on this on in episode one about fueling, where Trent mentioned that a lot of females might suffer from symptoms of reds just because they don't eat enough, which essentially for the female athlete is that if you restrict your calories for a prolonged period of time, then you may essentially present with some menstrual cycle irregularities. Now, interestingly, when we looked at Carl's data that he's just collected with the survey, 
out of the 600 female athletes that we surveyed, between 35 and 40% said they regularly skipped meals. Now, regularly skipping meal is something that you don't need to be smart to remember. That's just basic practice every day. And something as simple as not skipping a meal could have a big impact on the regularity of your menstrual cycle and then your performance. So I think tracking it and getting back to those basics of fueling consistently well day by day are two simple approaches that we can all do, whether you're an elite athlete or the everyday exerciser, we want to call them that. And what about people that think when they're on their period, I'm talking ex, I'm talking the everyday exerciser, the general population, um, you know, what we're all doing at the moment, none of us really are competing on whatever level we are. Um, what about the ones that think that they can't train or exercise during their period, especially if you have a heavy period? I mean, I think if if you want to train, why why wouldn't you? I mean, I think often, you know, lots of female athletes will say or you know exercising women will say that when they train they feel a little bit better so often the training alleviates some of those symptoms so you know I think it's just it just makes good sense to me to listen to your own body I mean you know we're talking about this you know about female athletes and these hormones and you know wow this is so different and so new but you know if if you had a male athlete who had a headache you'd take that into account wouldn't you you know so and you know if you had a male athlete who had a stomach ache again you know or diarrhea or whatever it might be you'd take that into your practice so again a bit like James I'm always like really surprised when you know women are reluctant to come forward and tell about their symptoms to their coaches you know almost like oh you know I, I shouldn't admit to this and it's like why not it's it's a symptom you know you have to build it into into you know to your training program but Charlie I'll just come back to something you said about sort of heavy menstrual bleeding and you know what should you eat or you know do you need to take iron and I think for me um you know one of the the sayings James and I know um Laurent Bannock really well and and his catchphrase is, is test don't guess um, and I know this is more difficult as you say just for sort of somebody who's who's exercising and maybe slightly easier for the elites but I would always say you know rather than just default to telling all sort of female athletes or exercisers they should take iron I think you should have that tested before we give that advice out. Um, so, yeah, so I think if you're tracking and you know that you're a heavy menstrual bleeder, then, you know, you can either sort of come forward to your support team if you're elite. But if, if you're not elite, why not go and see your GP or work it into the next time that you're, you know, you're speaking with them um, and have that tested. And then, of course, if you need it. But, you know, I really do like that, that saying test, don't guess. And, you know, I'm sort of, you know, tend never to say, you know, on on mass, you know, like blanketly, this is what you should supplement with. So I think, you know, that's a, an interesting concept, but it is iron's the sort of go-to one, right? That's what, whatever yeah. thinks for females. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I was the one that no, said no, that. No, no. A... <laughs> because I think that's, yeah, it is the thing that you automatically think, oh, I'm tired or I feel this, or I've got a heavy period. I must be anemic. I must take more iron without actually knowing whether that's the case. It's a good point to actually go and get that tested. If there's anybody listening that maybe feel that way. I would like to break down some myths um, because all you have to do is go on Google and there is a million different things. And I can imagine a lot of it's quite poor advice. And I do know that a lot of it is anecdotal rather than fact. And there was something that I was just having a little Google about, are you more injury prone when you're on your period? Yeah, that that's a, that's a good one. So I think if I took a, you know, a purely sort of researcher hat on for, for this answer, I would say that there 
you know, there's insufficient evidence to support, you know, that you're going to be more injury prone at one particular phase. I mean, injuries, you know, and, and how you occur an injury is so multifaceted. You know, I think it would be amazing if we could boil it down to, to one thing. It could be, you know, the surface of the, the ground that you're on, you know, sort of all, all these different things, wind, rain, whatever it might be. So I think I would say from a research perspective, there's insufficient evidence. And of the evidence we have, it's a mixed bag, you know, of, of low and high quality evidence. So I would sort of take it there. That's not to say that, you know, there's there's some, you know, there's papers which are showing things like um, ACL injuries, so anterior cruciate ligament injuries. You know, from a research perspective, some papers are showing that that happens when you ovulate. So when estrogen is at its highest. But interestingly, you know, you're talking about where do you get your, your information from? You know, I saw on Twitter and, um, you know, a study like that was published last year, went out into the Twitter sphere and, you know, athletes were coming forward going, no, 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 that's wrong. I did my ACL when I had my period. And so, yeah, I, you know, watching this really interesting debate on Twitter between this is what the scientific evidence says versus this is what, you know, athletes are reporting themselves. So I guess for the sake of transparency, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm involved in a study right now where uh, one of my PhD students and we're going to do these lab based studies. So, you know, trying to put out something really high quality evidence based from a research perspective but we've also just launched a little study on Twitter with the questionnaire asking athletes to tell us can they remember where in their cycle they were when when they had their ACL non-contact injury so yeah watch this space let's see what what's the lived experience versus what's the lab experience that is really interesting how it almost sometimes can contradict and I think lived experience is so important but then I suppose you've got to back it up by science James is there any other is there any other myths that we need to break down yeah, I, I think this whole area, Charlie, for me is that it's kind of a classic example of a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. It only takes one tweet for the whole community to then start changing how they do things, which is based on no evidence base. Injury is a classic example. I think there's also a bit of a myth, right? I've got my period, so I can't train as well. What I would say from a nutritional perspective is that because a lot of symptoms associated with being on your period might not make you want to eat and fuel correctly sometimes you can go into sessions under fueled when you're on your period so i think you have to make more of a conscious effort to actually fuel better during your period itself and if you don't then perhaps you may get caught out on some sessions perhaps that might even lead to injury itself yeah i think it's a good point as well because i think when you're on your period it can make you feel bloated which might mean that you will eat less Whereas you probably need to do the opposite or at least maintain your health, yeah. normal, healthy diet. Kirsty, I do want to bring up the final point because I know you've done some work around pregnancy as well. I was asked to go on a particular show to comment around Serena Williams when she had her baby. And I didn't actually, I, I refused to go on because I didn't feel like it should be a debate. I wonder if you could maybe dispel some myths around that and talk us through, you know, training before pregnancy, post pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, this is such an interesting area. And if we think we have limited data on the menstrual cycle, we have even less on, on pregnancy and almost, you know, nothing um, sort of, you know, literature, scientific literature based on elite sort of pregnancies. Um, and and so, yeah, so I've been involved in a, in a paper. We're, we're writing a paper at the moment, a sort of an opinion piece on this e exact area. And it's the idea that, you know, until recently, a pregnancy was a, a career ending sort of event for, for a sportswoman. And now, thankfully, you know, that that's not the case anymore. And we're seeing sort of, you know, elite female athletes, you know, 
hats off to them working a pregnancy into an Olympic cycle, you know, and the timing of that and the planning and the prep, it, it, you know, it's all something, you know, we could talk specifically about the pregnancy, but actually before even getting pregnant, you know, there's a lot to consider. And I guess, you know, the, the first thing to say is from a, you know, because we've been really talking today about hormones, you know, how they change in the menstrual cycle or because of hormonal contraceptive use. So during pregnancy, again, that menstrual cycle, you know, in a way, it goes away. So it stops being this repeating pattern of around a month long. And what you get is, is over sort of the pregnancy is a consistent rise in estrogen and progesterone and they peak, you know, just around the time of childbirth. So again, it's, it's another hormonal profile. And with those changes in, in hormones, you know, again, what, what response can we expect? So how does it change, you know, health, well-being, performance, injury, nutrition, all of these things? Um, the honest answer is we, we don't really know. Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of, of stories, you know, going back, you know, 50, 60 years ago, we had, you know, stories of um, some athletes at the Olympics becoming pregnant as a performance enhancing effect and then aborting their babies after the Olympics because, you know, it was, you know, the hormones were increasing and, you know, they were getting lots of pe- positive effects. And yeah, I, I, mean, I, I wish everybody that. could see your face. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so that was yeah, the thing. Listening at, like we can actually see each other and I think <laughs> yeah. my eyes were like really wide then. I didn't actually know that. It, it's outrageous, right? So, yeah. so you know, we 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 have that sort of as a as a as a legacy. Luckily, that that doesn't happen at all now. But you know, and um, obviously, we're hearing really great stories again, quite anecdotal of you know athletes who are successfully training and competing to quite you know a high level. You know, definitely into that second trimester, some squeaking right into that third trimester. And I think what I would say is, you know, you mentioned for example somebody like Joe Pavey. You know, she's obviously somebody who's highly active before getting pregnant, and what we would say is then you know to to remain active during her pregnancy that's a good fit I would just be super cautious those listening if you're not a highly active individual before pregnancy it's probably not the best time to sort of jump into high intensity activity but yeah so so now we're seeing you know athletes compete and train we won't even go into the idea of losing your sponsorship or anything like that with pregnancy. That's a, a story for another for another podcast. But yeah, certainly at the other end, I think, you know, once they've delivered, you know, the time scale for the return to sport is, is highly variable. And things to consider are things like sort of breastfeeding. So, so linking that to nutrition, you know, do you need additional calories when you're breastfeeding? The answer is yes, but maybe not as many as you think. But still, you know, if we're looking at underfueling in particular, that's an important consideration. We need to consider, you know, I think there's enough evidence out there now to suggest that, you know, the quality of breast milk isn't negatively affected by by mums who train. You know, there's all the anatomical changes, you know, when you're pregnant, your center of gravity changes, you know, center of mass. And, and so all these things, when you return, you know, it's it's like you've, you've changed your body completely. And now, you know, it's not an elastic band. It's not going to just ping back to exactly where it is so that, you know, that athlete will have to adapt to those changes. You know, when does the menstrual cycle return? Some For some women, it returns a month after having a baby. Um, you know, for some women, it could be eight months after. So all of these changes, what I'm describing is something, you know, very complex, lots of of moving parts um so yeah I, I think it's a really interesting you know sort of space right now to, to look at these but what I would say is something you know it's super positive you know that we are seeing so many elite athletes you know taking pregnancies into their career rather than waiting till the end and I guess as a super final point you know one group that we we don't tend to talk a lot about are Paralympians and actually you know anecdotally again we see 
far more mothers you know competing at the you know the Paralympics than we do at the Olympics and so I'm wondering what lessons we can learn you know from from these great you know absolutely sort of superhero athletes and and bring back into you know some of the other aspects of of sports so yes super interesting right but lots to think about. James, in this whole conversation, I think sometimes when I ask questions, I'm like, yeah, but what can people do or what can our listeners do? But is that always possible, especially when we're talking about something like the menstrual cycle? What I would say to our listeners, Charlie, is if you're a female exerciser listening to this episode, maybe in the past you haven't probably appreciated the impacts of perhaps what the menstrual cycle could do to your performance. Maybe you haven't really tracked your menstrual cycle. Maybe you haven't even thought about how your weight might change over the menstrual cycle. So as as a number one thing that you might be able to do from this episode is first of all, listen to your body a little bit more and start to really track your body and, and track how you're feeling. For the male who's listening to this episode, hopefully you've learned something because I know, I know I definitely have. But <laughs> yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think the, the males who are listening to this episode probably now just need to be more comfortable in in having conversations with females. Yeah, I think I've learned a lot though, you know, even as a woman. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I I did mention in in the interview with Kirsty that I often assumed that females knew all this stuff anyway. And then as I started doing this research, I I quickly learned that that was a mistake on my part and and the females didn't really understand their body as much as what males think that they do. Yeah, but it's a good point in terms of getting males to have the conversation though as well. How how do you think we do that? Well, I'm not quite sure yet, Charlie. I thought it was interesting that Jordan mentioned that she wouldn't be comfortable in speaking to her manager. So what we do need to quickly do is identify those people in the team, in the performance team, who perhaps the players and the athletes are more comfortable in opening up to. And maybe that might be the sport nutritionist. Maybe it's the doctor. Maybe it's the physio whoever it is in that multidisciplinary performance team needs to have that relationship and then communicate that back to the wider staff to then help the athlete. I wonder also if it starts at a very young age, in fact, when we're in schools, that boys should be part of the lessons as well as girls. And it shouldn't just be about, because it's not just a girl thing, is it? It's like, especially if you, I was just thinking like, if you're with a partner, then you want to be able to talk to your partner. And And I have three brothers and and I think because me and my mom have been really influential on them, they actually are really open because we've been really open about periods from a young age. Yeah, definitely, Charlie. I mean, thinking back to my upbringing in Belfast, I'm not really sure I was the best pupil at school, but I definitely don't remember anyone sitting down to teach me about the menstrual cycle as, as a young boy growing up. And, and when you think about it, why not? Why, why shouldn't this be on, at the top of the curriculum? Yeah, we could we could <laughs> we could go on about this all day, couldn't we? Thanks, James. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please do leave a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Check out our socials in the meantime at Science in Sport, and you can also drop myself and James a line too. Thanks for your feedback so far, and thanks again. And we'll see you next time.